everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Thank you so much, Robin and Barbara, for joining the show. Thank you for having us. Yes, thanks. So I want to start off by talking about some recent news that I know you're aware of, and I've heard at least one of you comment on this in the media, and that is the College Board's revision of its curriculum for an advanced placement African-American studies course. This happened just weeks after Florida's Republican Governor Ron DeSantis threatened to ban the class in Florida schools. These revisions were announced in February. And Florida had raised concerns about six points in the curriculum. Black queer studies, intersectionality, movement for black lives, black feminist literary thought, the reparations movement, and black struggle in the 21st century. Now, the college board made its own revisions, which they claim had nothing to do with DeSantis's decision. And their revisions include the removal of critical race theory, Black Lives Matter, slavery reparations, and queer theory as required topics. It also removes the late James Baldwin, the author ta Coates, the law professors Michelle Alexander and Kimberly Crenshaw, Angela Davis, Barbara Ransby, the late Bell Hooks, and Robin D.G. Kelly. So mazel tov on that, by the way. And it adds a section on Black conservatism. So I wanted to know both of your thoughts on this removal, on these revisions, why they were made, why they had to be done. Let's start with you, Robin, because your own work was subject to these revisions. Right. Not only that, I was actually in conversation with the college board the day before it was released. We had this sort of private meeting. And the short story is that the college board claims they did not succumb to political pressure. But as you know, the state of Florida, the education board basically released all these emails to show that they were in conversation and that they did respond. The short version, of course, is that what we're witnessing now is really what's coming down the line for other states. And that is, it's a complete assault, not just on those particular topics and not just on the work and not just on particular authors but on any criticism of the United States and any critical analysis that takes into consideration racism, patriarchy, homophobia, transphobia, sexism, and even class oppression in many ways. So that's what's happening. And right now there's a battle over whether or not the college board will change its position and then withdraw from those states or continue to try to make money off of those states. Barbara, what are your thoughts on this? Well, when this first started happening, and I think it started happening before the college board's decisions, I think that when critical race theory started being under attack a few years ago, I would say to my friends, and I am, you know, older than Robin and older than you, Katie. (laughs) (laughs) And the reason I mentioned that is because I'm in the generation of scholars, thinkers, academics who built these fields. When I went to college, and certainly when I was in K-12, 
There was no black studies. There was no ethnic studies. There was no women's studies. There certainly wasn't any gender studies or queer studies. So as I said, people in my age group, and I graduated from college in 1969 with the clear purpose of going to graduate school, which I started the very same year so that I could teach African-American literature. And how many courses did I have in African-American literature in graduate school? One. I had one. And that was just by lucky happenstance because I had a Black advisor. But be that as it may, that is in an English department, I had a Black advisor. So as I said, this, this has been an effort to erase all of the work that we have so carefully and so with such commitment built over these decades because unlike the kinds of education, probably I'm sure all of us have gotten that kind of American, you know, exceptionalism education. But unlike the education that we got, what we've been involved in, I, when I say we, I mean Robin and I and so many others, we've been involved in trying to get to the truth of what has happened in this nation. And of course, as they said in that wonderful movie, they can't handle the truth. So since they can't handle it, they're going to get rid of it. What do you think is so threatening to the people who removed it, both Ron DeSantis and the AP College Board? Could I just say one sentence? Sure. Because a full-fledged, credible course in African-American studies is a great assault on white supremacy. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so we can't have that happen. Exactly. And this is why this goes back to the fact that every single one of those categories is true. Barbara and her cohort um, generation made it possible, basically invented those fields. Every single one. From, they got rid of Black feminist literary theory. They got rid of queer studies. All these things come down to that work. But where did that work come from? That work came out of movements. Because let's face it, the idea of Black studies, like the idea of, of women's studies, wasn't simply to uh, diversify the curriculum or, you know, try to have, be more inclusive. It was about transforming our society, you know, and that is the threat. That is the threat. Because if you take a class in Black studies, it's truly a class in Black studies that is interdisciplinary, that deals with sort of, as, as um, the Combayee River Collective says, interlocking oppressions, then what you're doing is you're... Um, critiquing and revealing the very structures that made the United States not exceptional, right? That made the United States what it is. And we're trying to change this country, you know? So, I mean, look, I mean, I have lots of problems with Ron DeSantis, and I know this is all a ploy, but there's some truth in the fact that this work is a threat to the status quo. That's an interesting point. So you agree that it's a threat. It's just a threat that you may want and he may fear. Yes, but keep in mind that when we say a threat, I just want to be clear to your listeners, the threat is not to white people. That's the most ignorant thing I've ever heard. I mean, people say this. The threat is to, to the status quo, to capital. It is to white supremacy, to patriarchy, to a system that actually extracts wealth from our labor and, our, and, and continues to maintain this hierarchy. So I think that's really, really important to recognize. How does it threaten these things? How do these courses threaten the status quo, as you're both arguing? I think it's kind of obvious in some ways, but one of the ways that it does that is because it has young people start questioning. 
they look at what's around them. They can see what's happening because they're deeply affected by the great wealth inequality, by their student debt, by the fact that they're not going to do any better than their parents or maybe even their grandparents did, unlike that American dream that's supposedly been chugging along ever since, you know, the founding fathers. So they can see what's happening. But then in the kinds of courses that are being expunged, they find out like the why of it. And then they begin to think about different uh, possibilities and different alternatives. They figure out, well, maybe those people who live in another neighborhood who I never knew until I got to a college campus, maybe they're not my problem. Maybe it's like something called a system that's my problem that is lodged against us. Like this country has never wanted people to be critical thinkers. They've never wanted that to be the case. And those few of us who escaped and became critical thinkers, often we end up in prison or in some other places or either like in exile in some other country. We're not popular. You know, we're just not popular. And, um, but we persist. You know, there's, you know, that black radical tradition that uh, Robin writes about so brilliantly it's still in existence and uh, the children, they're being born every day. We're mm-hmm. going to take that on. That's right. Robin, you mentioned the Combahee River Collective. And of course, Barbara, you were part of that collective. And that is kind of the origin of the very misunderstood, often misunderstood, often weaponized, often obscured term identity politics. Can you talk about the Combahee River Collective and what identity politics means to you and your cohort? Go ahead, Robin. Oh, oh no. I <laughs> this is a question for you. Yeah, this one may have your name all over it. Robin has a good understanding of this, though. Well, I could say what, I mean, you know, of course, and we all learn this from you. I mean, this is a very important question because of the way in which identity politics has been kind of hijacked and transformed. And what happens is that people, including people on the left, will criticize the hijacked version and not actually go to the source. So if you look at the uh, Combahee River Collective, um, you know, it, it, it lays out what is a radical... The statement. Yeah, the statement lays out what is really a truly radical understanding of identity. Identity is not mentioned in terms of narrow interests, uh, but it is really about a critique of what, what the statement calls interlocking uh, uh, oppressions, you know, the fact that um, that to identify as a Black woman or as a queer Black woman is to recognize the multiple vectors of oppression and extraction that they have to experience. And there's so many movements that emerged that said, you know, that's not really important. Well, we'll we, have, we have to deal with, with, with racism in the man, or we have to deal with capitalism, you know, and all this other stuff is secondary. And trust me, after the revolution, racism would just disappear. You know, and that's not people's realities. And I just want to just point out to people this really important paragraph, and I could read the whole thing, where the statement states that, you know, we're socialists, right? Um, They talk about material resources must be equally distributed among those who create these resources, you know? And we are not convinced, however, that a socialist revolution that is not also a feminist and anti-racist revolution will guarantee our liberation. It was a gauntlet-throwing statement for all movements of liberation to embrace 
It wasn't exclusionary, right? And that's what identity politics was intended to mean. It wasn't corporate diversity politics. It wasn't representation within a multiracial ruling class. On the contrary, what we see on the streets is a multiracial, multiracial opposition to a multiracial ruling class, which is class struggle, but we don't ever see it that way. We often see that as, you know, not the real class struggle because the people who talk about the real class struggle are the armchair, armchair leftists who don't actually do much, but criticize every other movement for not putting class first. Thank you for that, Robin. And your essay on Black feminism, which we'll link to in the description, was really excellent. Barbara, what else can you tell us about your conception of identity politics, what it meant to you when you were discussing it, and how you feel like it has been hijacked? It definitely has been hijacked. And one of the things that's really important to understand about the place and time of origin is what was going on around gender and sexuality and race and class politics at the time. What we were asserting is that we, as people identified as black and female at birth, who were, you know, a part of those two groups, that we had a right to form our own political agendas. And this was not a perspective that was widely shared or supported during the late 1970s and into the early 1980s, because Black politics and Black struggle was understood to be Black male-defined, and struggle around gender and, and also, to some extent, sexuality was considered to be white and white women. So we were saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's something going on here in our lives that has not been captured at all and certainly has not developed into a, a, a visible political agenda. And we're saying we have a right to actually began to be involved in that project. We were not separatists. We strongly believed in coalition. And we did not see ourselves as superior to any other group of people. And one of the things about our believing in coalition is that we have a record of practice. You know, we, it's not just in the book that we say, or in the statement that we say that we're committed to that. We're committed to this uh, day. One of the things that I've been working on a lot this year is the situation in Ukraine. Yes, I said the situation in Ukraine. Why would I, as a black woman and an out black lesbian, be concerned about that? Because it's a problem. That's why. And it's a problem that's susceptible to political dialogue and to political intervention. So, I mean, as I said, we don't have to prove that we're committed to it. We have the record of it. And one of the things about how it has been misunderstood is that most people have never read the Combahee River Collective Statement. They have no idea that those two words together, identity politics, first appeared there. I believe that the way that it has been misunderstood and misinterpreted is because other people came up with the same concept, that people on the right and, and the left started using the concept according to what their definitions were without ever knowing that there was like a first iteration of that in something written by Black feminists. So... I don't want to be blamed. That's one of the things I, I came on your show to say, do not blame me <laughs> for what has happened to identity politics because people have not read the original source. And if they did, they might feel a little more comfortable around what it was we were saying. Do you remember discussions about this? Like, was there an aha moment with someone like, oh, it's identity. Let's use this word. Was it more organic? How did it come out? Well, there, there's some like, there's like a secret history of uh, the writing <laughs> of the Combahee River collective statement. 
and I will probably not share it here, but there were only three of us. I'll say this. There are only three of us. I needed to get you a drink before we did this. <laughs> oh, I can tell the truth without, without a drink. Okay. So this is a process. The process is that my sister Beverly, my twin sister Beverly and I, and Demita Fraser, we got together, we taped a conversation or maybe more than one conversation. And then a certain person, namely me, was charged with going home and typing up what we had said. So I'm not sure that if identity politics was something that we had said as a group, because that's lost to time, sadly, or if it was something that I just typed on my little Smith Corona portable typewriter. That's what we used in those days. But be that as it may, I can't say. I can't say. Certainly the concept of identity politics evolved in the context of the Combahee River Collective among more people than just the three who I mentioned who took on the task of writing it. But as far as like, did we ever say those words and then, you know, I write them down or somebody say, oh, you need to put that in because we came back after I'd done a draft and uh, suggestions were made and then back to the drawing board until we had it finished. But as I said, I can't say that definitively. I just know it was a concept that was applicable to what we had been discussing politically. Right. So, so Barbara, can I ask a question about this? So is it, it's true that um, Zilla Eisenstein had wanted you all to create a, uh, a statement for a feminist conference at uh, Antioch. Is that right? No, she asked us to write something for her book, Capitalist Patriarchy and the Case for Socialist Feminism. Uh, that uh, conference at Antioch, which I attended, that socialist feminist conference at Antioch, uh, which I think would have been the summer of 75, mm-hmm. the Comedy River Collective Statement followed that I see. chronologically. So, yes, Zila uh, Eisenstein, she didn't say write a statement, as I recollect. I think she just asked, can you write something? Can the collective write something for this book? And the statement is what we came up with. And I also say, quite honestly, I don't know that we ever would have written the statement if Zila had not asked us to, because why would we have? But the challenge of getting it down on paper, that was a great coming together of uh, circumstances that we did do it. Right. See, that's so important because it demonstrates, again, what it means to be in coalition, what it means to be part of a larger movement. And also, and I just want to just hold this up, all of you were involved in really significant struggles around reproductive rights, around anti-war and anti-war movement, of course, and coming out of the civil rights movement, but even immediately in Boston, the vicious violence against women, black women in particular, vulnerable women, creating shelters for battered women, you know, doing this work, fighting even on the tail end of Roe, these struggles around black women's right to not be sterilized you know? Exactly. And you're doing that really important work. And I think those politics are part of what shapes the radical character of the statement. That's true. And that's that's what I was saying about our practice, that we have a record of practice. I know that you mentioned in your interview with Kianga Yamada-Taylor, you talk about how um, you would would attend uh, strikes, uh, picket lines, uh, protests for construction workers who were surprised to see you show up. So how did you, how did that occur to you? Was that an organic part of your politics? Did you think of it, oh, we should be doing this? Or was it just part of your view of the world? Because we were so politically active and because 
at that time, uh, Boston had a really interesting left, uh, you know, leftist movement that was working on a number of issues. We would hear about most things that would have been relevant to people with our politics. Another thing that was going on in Boston at that time was uh, the, the uh, war, I don't know what else to call it, around school desegregation. So uh, at the very same time that Combahee was beginning its work and doing its work, there was race war going on in the city where we were trying to do it. And uh, the, the fact is that that uh, picket line that we described was on the site of a new high school that was being built in Roxbury, which is the central black community, or at least at the time was a central black community in Boston, but they weren't hiring any people of color to work on the high school in the black, that was cited in the black community. So that's why we came out for that, because it was a clear, you know, workers' rights and racial rights issue. And that's very typical, of course, of the construction, the history of the construction trades in the United States, that uh, no people of color need apply. So that was why. I kind of skipped this part, but can you share with people what the Combahee River Collective was and why you chose the name that you chose for it? Uh, we were a group that uh, grew out of the National Black Feminist Organization. The National Black Feminist Organization started in 1973, uh, or at least it uh, had its first major conference in 1973. My sister, Beverly, lived in New York at that time. I was living in Boston and she found out about the conference. Uh, she had met Margaret Sloan because she was working at Ms. Magazine. And so we kind of had an inside scoop on what was going to happen. And I came down to New York from Boston, attended the conference, and then we were charged with those who attended the conference, and there were hundreds who did from all over the country. They were charged with starting chapters of the National Black Feminist Organization in their hometowns. And so... Uh, I went back to Boston. I think there were a couple of people there from Boston, uh, Boston at the conference. And we went back to Boston and started a chapter of the National Black Feminist Organization. Uh, we, you know, were committed to those, you know, to the organization. As I think I mentioned, I'd met Margaret Sloan, who was one of the founders of the, uh, of NVFO. But at a certain point, we decided that we wanted to expand our politics and, uh, that we were to the left of. Uh, the National Black Feminist Organization as it had expressed its politics during that time. And so we became an independent group. And the Combahee River is the name of the, the river, which you can go see, it's in, in South Carolina. It's the name of the river where Harriet Tubman planned and led a raid on plantations along the river that freed over 750 enslaved people during the Civil War. And so that's why we became the Combahee River Collective. And again, a little fun fact uh, is that we've been pronouncing it incorrectly all these decades. It's actually Cumbie, as if it's two syllables with no A in the middle. And uh, I heard a wonderful podcast about the history of the raid a few years ago, and they interviewed people who lived there. And these are, these are living South Carolinians, and they all said Cumbie. I said, okay, got that one wrong, too. <laughs> But anyway, that's why we named ourselves as we did. And so what do identity politics mean to you? It means that you have a right to uh, have all yourselves be in the room and that people who have not experienced the things that you've experienced might take some heed that 
when you share about how your identity affects your objective material conditions, that they listen to you and that they, they think about their work differently. Here's an example, the issue of violence against women. So the uh, movement uh, to uh, challenge violence against women grew up with the second wave of the women's movement. There used to not be a single shelter in the United States. When I first was involved with feminism, there were no shelters in the entire United States. But one of the uh, uh, strategies of the violence against women uh, movement, including sexual assault, as well as domestic violence, is that you call the police. And of course, for women of color, that's like a non-starter. It's like, call the police, you know? And what, and what world has that ever made our situation better? So um, women of color who've been directly involved in organizing around uh, violence against women have had to both explain to the wider movement, like, this is a work for everybody who lives here. We have different relationships to uh, armed, uh, armed you know, forces of, of, of control. And... And, and that, and we have different ways for uh, also of figuring out how to deal with this problem within our communities that doesn't necessarily make the first call to uh, the police. It's very, very complicated, but it's uh, these, these are complications that only people who live through it can actually share with you. No, people are not generally going to come up with that on their own. So that's a perfect example of like what happens when people are allowed to do political work and analysis. And uh, out of out of their identities, and build a movement that's stronger. To have a movement of uh, of violence against, that is combating violence against women that takes into account racism and white supremacy. That's a stronger movement. So that's how it works. And Robin, do you remember hearing identity politics for the first time? The term. Yeah, well, I guess more than once. I mean, the first time I actually wrote about this in the foreword to this beautiful book of interviews with with Barbara, when I read the amazing collection of works on Black women's studies, you know, all the men are, are, uh, how is it, all the... All the women are white. All the women are white, all the men... All the Blacks are men. All the Blacks (laughs) are men, but some of us are brave. 1982. So the statement is actually in that text, and I read it then. But, but to me, it was framed around the whole book. It wasn't just the Combined River Collective Statement. It was um, an expression. The whole book was an expression of what uh, interlocking oppressions and what it means to build uh, a movement around multiple identities. And these identities are not separate silos. They, they actually are mutually cons- uh, constitutive. And so, you know, to go back to the story of... of, of um, the work that that you all were doing in Boston um, around uh, violence against women and this series of murders of, of Black women in Roxbury and Mattapan, places like that. Well, one of the struggles was also to defend Willie Sanders, who was a Black man who was a janitor, who was accused, falsely accused of rape, raping white women in Brighton. And so on the, con- on, the on one hand, they're doing all these things at the same time, fighting a kind of racist judicial structure that uh, that that's in some ways making white women feel safe by arresting this black man who is completely innocent and insisting that there be something done about the killing of of these 
black women. And the cops were not necessarily the most effective uh, force to do that. So, um, and creating ways of, of defending themselves as, as black women. So I think all those things together represent the politics that we need to build. And one last thing, um, one of the big frustrating things for me in, ta- in terms of talking about identity politics is the way in which we don't talk about white identity. And that to me is the problem. The problem has never been uh, a matter of convincing you know, people of color to join the class, to support the class. Um, that's never been the issue. The issue has always been uh, historically, how come we can't get white workers to embrace the whole class? I mean, that's the fundamental contradiction. They, they, they tell us, like, leave your identities at the door, but, you know, coalesce around this idea of one worker identity, you know. And I know Christian Parenti was on your show talking about this, and I completely disagree with the way he talked about factionalism. But if you look at the long history of labor— it was the exclusion of black workers, the exclusion of Asian workers, the exclusion of agricultural workers, the exclusion of domestic workers. This is why unions have historically been, you know, consistently um, uh, opposed to um, to changing the structure of capital. You know, they unions have tolerated racially segmented labor force. They've tolerated wage differentials based on race. These white workers have often supported housing policies that maintain segregation because they don't want their homes devalued, um, whatever that means. And, you know, or policies that exclude black people and brown people from publicly funded institutions, better schools, better hospitals. That is against class struggle. So you have, it's kind of flipped we are saddled with a white identity politics rooted in settler colonialism, which has convinced generations of white people that somehow one day they might be a slaveholder or one day they might own property. Um, and in, in defending that position, they don't join the rest of the class. See, so that's the point I really want to make because it's not the factionalism built into the Constitution or the or, um, uh, that, that James Madison had promoted because how can you turn to an enslaved person or indigenous person and say, well, you're a faction, you know, when their structural relationship to capital is totally different, you know? So that's, that's to me, the big pet peeve. And so identity politics in this radical iteration would basically say we're looking at the whole class as whole people in terms of all the things they experience and all the modes of oppression that they have to deal with. I actually wanted to just go back for one second to the original discussion we were having, which is related, of course, to the college board. Can you just share a little bit more, Robin, about what your discussions were with people on the board and how that even happened? Like, why were you even talking to them at that point? Well, it's, I was talking to them simply because I wanted to write an article based on what we thought the curriculum was going to look like. I was prepared to, to defend the college board and to defend African-American studies AP, right? But then we discovered that wasn't the same curriculum. And so we had to go on on the offensive in many ways. So in a nutshell, the college board defended itself by arguing that they had already made these changes ahead of time. And that, that might be true. And if that might be true, then that's even more damning. You know, it's, it says that within the institution, those people who were, who were designated as experts were the ones who made these changes. Um, that, there might be truth to that. And of course, if those changes were made, it's always in the context of, of politics because 
Think about it. The College Board is a not-for-profit institution that does a billion dollars a year in business. And when they lose a state, you know, a whole state, especially Florida, which has the largest number of students taking AP courses in any other state in the country, then that's a loss of revenue for them. And, and this is not the first time. Remember, 2014, 2015, the College Board caved when there were some mild changes made to the uh, U.S. history uh, AP course when they simply wanted to do things like mention racism. Racism was eliminated because the Republicans went crazy because they did that. And what did the College Board do? They caved. So they have a history of that. They have history because it's a corporation, you know? But the larger, larger issue for me still is we have a lot of work to do in terms of teaching not just students who are college-bound, but transforming the whole curriculum, not just for AP, but for the whole curriculum. And we're in a war where all these states are passing these anti-critical race theory laws using the power of the legislature, right, which the Republicans didn't have as much in, the ni- in uh, 2014. Now they have it. They own the legislature and they're passing these laws, which are a direct attack, not just on academic freedom, but on, on our ability to actually think freely. It's propaganda and it's downright fascism. I mean, don't tell me this is not fascism, because <laughs> that's what it comes down to. Thank you both so much for your contributions thus far. And we're just going to keep going. And we're going to bring on our next guest. Norman Finkelstein, whose book, whose recent book, I'll Burn That Bridge When I Get to It, Heretical Thoughts on Identity Politics, Cancel Culture, and Academic Freedom, deals with a lot of these issues that we're discussing. Norman, welcome. Thank you for having me, and I enjoyed listening to uh, Robin and Barbara. So you read, we all had kind of an assignment where we all read, not each other's works, because I don't have any works, but we all read some of Robin's work, Norman's book and Barbara's interventions. And again, I'll, I'll link to all, well, I can't link to all of them because they're too many, but I'll link to some of your guys' extensive bibliography. But let's just start, I mean, what, Norman, do you want to respond to some of the things that you heard in this discussion or Barbara and Robin, do you want to respond to some of the things that you read in Norman's book? It's up to you how you guys want to proceed. I'm willing to respond to some of the things I heard here. And I did listen very closely. I was forewarned by Katie uh, about uh, about an hour ago. Um, Remember, I don't want to get canceled. No, I didn't say that. I didn't say I don't want to get canceled. I said, let's be civil. I said, let's make sure that we're all civil, is what I said. And then you made a joke about my getting canceled. You said, don't worry, you're not going to get canceled. Yeah. I was paraphrasing. So I'm going to just say a couple of things. And... Uh, it's in the spirit of trying to have an honest conversation and not and not just have bromides feel goods and uh, to really engage with each other. Let me begin by saying I'm not at all an expert. I'm not even a novice in most of these fields that you have discussed. I've had, a, for various reasons, I ended up special, hyper-specializing in a couple of topics in my adult life. And uh, that was to the detriment of many other things I wish I had time to explore, but I didn't. On the other hand, I think there's a kind of what you might call a minimal uh, mental competence, such that you can go into areas where you don't know a lot, but nonetheless apply basic reasoning, basic uh, um, 
looking for basic coherence, things like that. Apply those ordinary standards and reach a conclusion about whether something you're reading is coherent or not, whether it's compelling or not, whether it's convincing or not. There, I think, um, what you could call an educated reader can reach conclusions even, even in the absence of having steeped themselves in the scholarly literature. So having said that, uh, let me just address a couple of things I heard you say. And uh, as I say, I'm going to be candid, but absolutely respectful. You know, when I hear you talk about your history, I respect that. That's a, that's a, that's a life. It's a, a, a good life, in my opinion, and a life deserving of respect and honor. Um, so I hope you'll take my comments with that uh, sentiment in mind. I'll deal with two things. I'll start with one, and then we'll move to the second. The question of the Afri African-American uh, AP course curriculum. I was following the news on it. I sat down and I read it. It's about, I think, 224 pages. I read it carefully. I'm not an expert in the field, but I was curious what topics did it cover, what topics did it exclude. So it begins with Africa, and basically it's a kind of restorative depiction of Africa, having been so maligned. The emphasis in the African section is, uh, I think, fairly... Uh, it's uh, the achievements of Africa, the fact that empires existed there, and all sorts of things which, even in this present day, most people don't know. And even if they do know, it goes in one ear and out the other because of all the propaganda, the imagery, and so forth. Okay. It then goes to slavery, uh, goes to the, uh, the, um, uh, the slave trade, slavery. Goes through reconstruction, uh, goes through pre-Civil War, Civil War, uh, Reconstruction, uh, Civil Rights Movement, Black Power Movement. So in terms of general themes, it seemed to have covered the terrain that one would expect in an African-American studies curriculum. I would say it gives over. We can disagree, but I'm going to say it nonetheless. It gives over super abundant space to contributions of women. I would say there is not a single page in that curriculum, not a single page. And I would say estimate, I don't have it in front of me now, I would estimate about 20% of the sections, 20% of the sections are on African American women. So the idea that it somehow excludes the female or women contribution, I'm not saying you say it, I'm just trying to give a picture of that curriculum. I would say that claim would not be true. Okay, can I jump in here? Because you're, you're taking a lot of time to, to say this. Can I just respond to this? Because I read every page of that curriculum. And there are two things to keep in mind. One is not, the course wasn't supposed to be an African-American history course. It became that. It was an African-American studies course, which is to say it was interdisciplinary. And so much of what was taken out wasn't just history, but it was framing. It was theoretical interventions, number one. And number two, let's just say it's a glorified history course. That's fine. But do we really want to play the game of, of percentages? It, it, even if we do play the game of percentages, 20% 
in terms of the centrality of Black women, that doesn't really make sense. I said special sections. Well, but, but, but you don't need special sections because, and I, look, and I'm saying that I'm not, even, I'm not even arguing that DeSantis had anything to do with that. I'm saying that the way that a lot of us, I can speak for myself, I teach African-American history. Uh, and so the texts that I use as my major texts are usually texts that center on uh, Black women as the, as the major text, not as a supplement, supplementary text. You know? And there's lots of reasons for that. You can't think about something like, like slavery without thinking about reproduction. You, know? you can't think about, the, you know, we, we talk about the, the, the late 19th century and the period of Booker T. Washington debates Du Bois, when that's not the fundamental question. The fundamental question is you have these Black women's organizations that are fighting lynching, you know, and that are actually post-Reconstruction organizations that are, you know, resisting segregation in a way. Some are elite, some are working class, you know. Um, so there's a lot of things that, that, that really, if we really want to be serious about trying to tell this history as history, there's no way we can have separate sections on Black women alone and it constitute one-fifth when it should be more than half, that's just my position. And I didn't say that. I think I said, I don't think there's a single page. I don't think there's a single page that doesn't mention black women. And then I said, in addition to that, there are whole sections given over to black women. Now, you said it's an Afro-American studies course not an African-American history course. It happens, and I'm sure you'll agree that I think an excessive amount of space is given over to black culture, music, art, photography, many references to black hair. So it's more, in my opinion, in a black history course I would have liked to see something on the black working class. There is one section entitled the growth of the black middle class. There is virtually nothing in that curriculum about the black working class. I found that very troubling. I saw nothing in that curriculum about issues of black health. Nothing in that curriculum except for one tiny section on the 1930s, nothing on black housing, nothing on black employment. And so when I read this in curriculum, my thought was, it was an awful lot of black middle class professors who wrote this curriculum. Now, of the advisory board and the contributors, there are 13. Of those 13, 12 are black. So I have to assume they had some input. There was one white person whose specialization is African uh, Africa history. Apart from that, so if you were to ask me what's the problem with that curriculum, I would say the problem is It's way too woke, way too woke. There is a section on black power, 
followed by a section on the Black Panthers. This is kind of like a professional Black middle class look at the past. Well, I would have liked to see something on Bob Moses, something on Diane Nash, something on Ella Baker. That, I think, would have been interesting. What I want to say is that there's nobody talking right now who created this course. So what we would like to see, Robin and I talked about, I think we were mostly focusing on the issue of censorship and suppression of, of subject matter about people of African heritage living in the United States. That's what concerns me about it. I have it downloaded on my computer too, but unlike the two of you, I haven't read every page of it. But like the, the things that you're saying are missing, I don't have any problems with, uh, Norman, with what you're saying is missing from this uh, curriculum. The fact that you're saying that black middle-class people created it, who gets to be college professors at that, you know? I mean, we're not going to our state prisons where the geniuses are. We're not going to our state prison where the geniuses are to ask them, would you mind, you know, in your spare time here as you're being incarcerated, uh, developing some course, courses for advanced placement, you know, uh, African-American history. That's not how these things happen. So what we have is a product of, you know, the college board, the corporation. The, I never knew it was a billion-dollar corporation until now that is until this period i knew it before uh, we started our conversation today but the thing is that what we have is a kind of approach and the kind of content that would happen if you created this problem or not this problem i'm sorry if you created this project under racial capitalism who would be invited who would be qualified who would get asked now as i said to me the most important thing is that there's certain states and state governments and leaders of states who wish to be president, who wish to erase all of this material, right, wrong, class conscious, gender conscious, race conscious, you name it, they want to get rid of it. To me, getting rid of uh, black uh, feminists or black women's literary uh, work, that's my baby because I went to grad school in literature. That's a specific field I went in and saw the development of uh, African-American literature and black women writers, you know, a trajectory, you know, uh, through uh, the years. So that concerns me. I think we miss, if it's not there, we missed a really great uh, historical record. And also uh, we, we miss uh, some analytical, you know, some analytical tools that would be useful. It also bothers me that queer studies uh, and queer theory went out because quiet as it's kept, a lot of the greatness of African-American politics, culture, social, you name it, you name it, what queer people were involved, right. often uh, closeted. So, I mean, as I said, we didn't create it. I don't know if we could, uh, should argue about. Yeah, and we're not here to defend it. <laughs> that wasn't the point at all. I, as a factual matter, it mentions black lesbians felt excluded from the civil rights movement. It mentions that Bayard Rustin was gay. It mentions not extensively, but it's there. And we should have an accurate representation of what we're talking about, because then people are going to just accuse those who are critical of the curriculum of being propagandists. We have to be honest about those things. It was very clear on Bayard Rustin. 
Now, I thought it should have been clearer in the, Harvard, in the Harlem Renaissance that there were many gay people in the Harlem Renaissance. It should have been there. And that, to me, was, an, uh, I won't call it an inexcusable absence, but it was an obvious absence. But to, depict, to depict this curriculum as being this wholesale capitulation of the college board to the forces of the right, I don't think it's an accurate depiction of the curriculum. And I don't know how much of that curriculum was a result of the agenda of those who wrote it, not because of the right. It's not like we don't know the exchanges between DeSantis's education department and the college board, because, you know, we're not talking about the whole curriculum. We're talking about specific things that were taken out after there were complaints. That's the question. I mean, because if any of us were to put together a curriculum, it wouldn't look like that. And it's not just not a defense of the curriculum, nor is it being dishonest. It is talking about specific areas that were just removed in response to emails between the Department of Education and the College Board. That's the issue. So maybe we can move on to the next thing you wanted to talk with us about. Yeah. What I thought would make for an interesting discussion is that all three of you, and myself included, were leftists. And I wanted to talk about, I guess, one of the things that you write about in your book, Norman, is identity politics and intersectionality. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.